thank you for joining us on this episode of the Hunt Back Country podcast. The topic today is wolf hunting, and we are joined by Toby from the Idaho Fish and Game Department to talk about wolf hunting in Idaho. Not only hunting and the tactics and tips for hunters pursuing wolves, but also the background and context for the presence of wolves specifically in Idaho, but also as it relates to other states. Toby has vast experience in wildlife management and conservation, going back to many years that you'll hear about he was in Alaska before he transitioned to Idaho. And so this is a multifaceted discussion all about wolves and wolf hunting that I hope you'll enjoy. Our goal with this topic was to discuss it in a level-headed manner, as wolf hunting and the presence of wolves and the way that they affect hunters and other wildlife, it's a debated topic, it's often a heated topic, and there's vast polarities on both sides of the issue. We just wanted to kind of talk about the facts and get into the presence of wolves, the current state of wolves in Idaho and other states, what they see as the future, and then also give you as hunters information that can help you if you are pursuing wolves as a species that you want to hunt. Hope you guys enjoy this one. As always, you can share your feedback, questions, anything like that with us directly via email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. All right, let's get straight into this episode with Toby from the Idaho Fish and Game Department. Toby, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate you uh, inviting me. Yeah. Steve, how are you doing today? Good, good. Excited to uh, talk to Toby about wolves in my home state here. It's been uh, it's a, a controversial subject to to say it lightly for a lot of people. So, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll be, uh, yeah, excited to. Uh, obviously, Idaho's uh, gotten pretty aggressive here up in the tags and increasing seasons and, and, uh, excited to kind of dig into that. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get there for sure. Um, to kick things off, Toby, go ahead and let us know about your current role and position there in Idaho. Um, and then I'd like to dive into a bit of background, but first who are you and what's your current role there? So, uh, my name is Toby Boudreau and I am the chief of the wildlife bureau for the Idaho department of fish and game. So, um, I'm basically in charge of the 130 staff that we have statewide and provide them programmatic direction and guidance for uh, all the work that Idaho Fish and Game does concerning wildlife, including management and research. Yeah. Awesome. That's a pretty broad subject. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's a lot going on for sure. Everything from rare plants to uh, to uh, wolves. Okay. Yeah, how, how much, out of curiosity, I mean, there's probably, how much of your work do you think is directly related to hunters um, and and not, right? Like, how much time are you spending on plants versus, versus um, managing wildlife for hunting? Well, I mean, we have 130 staff members, and two of them work on plants. Okay, uh, wow. So the vast uh, majority yeah. of what you guys do is for management yeah. of wildlife. Yeah. And if you look at it from a financial standpoint, you know, the Wildlife Bureau budget uh, last year was about $26 million, and about $1.5 million of that was used for, um, was money that was used for uh, non-game species of greatest conservation need, sort of the unhunted species for the most part. Mm -hmm. 
predominantly okay. used for hunting uh, hunters and and their habitat uh, that we manage in the state. That's yeah, great info. How does that? Uh, this is a super broad question, but just in general, how does that compare to maybe other states? Is Idaho pretty unique in that, or is that um, something relatively common, at least in the western type of states? Well, I would say that it's probably pretty common. Uh, we all, uh, you know, every western state uses. Uh, sort of similar funding were for the most part self-funded agencies idaho is self-funded so we rely on the federal grants um other outside grants and then licensed dollars and uh for hunting and fishing licenses and tags and um part of the cool thing about the way that Pittman robertson and dingle johnson which are the federal tax on Pittman Robertson, of course, is hunting equipment, ammunition, uh, guns, um, and then Dingle Johnson is the fishing side of things. But part of the legislation that created those basically said that states enabled, in order to get that those funds, they had to dedicate 100% of their license funds back to wildlife and fisheries. So mm. um, none of our license money is used for other things other than coming right back into the agency. So, and I would say that most states are, have similar percentages. Um, you know, of course there's a fund that's, uh, funds non-game stuff called the state wildlife grants, which is, a another federal funding grant sorts. And I think states get a, those amounts of money are based on your land area and the number of licenses you sell or the population. So we are not a max state, obviously California, you know, they get the maximum amount from those grants and, uh, and those grants uh, in particular have to be met uh, with a, uh, a three to one match. So $3 of federal money and we have to match it with $1 of state license dollar or hmm. not non-federal money. Interesting. We have a lot of listeners in Idaho, but we have listeners all over the country and even in other countries, um, some of which probably have some level of understanding of how decisions are made. And even thinking of, as we'll get into some recent changes here to say wolf hunting regulations and extensions of seasons there, which we'll get into. But can you just give us like a really high level? How are those decisions made? Um, and then what is your role in that um both in terms of decision-making, but obviously, as you mentioned, it's a matter of um, rolling that out, if you will, among Idaho Fish and Game staff. But just give us, for like, from a high level, at least for Idaho specifically, a general understanding when we talk about conservation and management and seasons and tag allocation, all that, how are those decisions made? Well, I guess, uh, Mark, I guess we have to start by saying that, you know, the legislatures of every state are actually the they are the trustees of the common trust resources, which wildlife are one of those. And they sort of, they, they set policy. And then that policy is then implemented here in Idaho by our Fish and Game Commission, which is um, a group of seven people that are appointed by the governor. And then they're the ones that actually take the biological information that Idaho Fishing Game um, gathers, the and 
the public attitudes and opinions that we get from surveys and from uh, other online questionnaires and public input at meetings. And they're the ones that coalesce those two pieces of information into decisions about, about wildlife management. Of course, this all sort of stems from um, the uh, enacting legislation that happened in 1938 in Idaho that, you know, basically created the current department as we know. And uh, that basically says that Idaho Fish and Game's job is to preserve, protect, and perpetuate wildlife for people in Idaho. So that's kind of where it all started. And um, the commission has six months, six meetings every year. And, and uh, you know, like for big game seasons here for Idahoans, we know that we only set those every other year now. But um, uh, yeah, so that they make decisions. And sometimes like uh, the recent decision um, to increase wolf hunting opportunity um, was a uh, was a was a, a special teleconference that they did to, to do that. So. They can also do that at times when they need to. We could probably spend an hour just talking about your current role, talking about background, but I am just curious after speaking with you the other day uh, before the podcast and hearing about your background a bit, um, sounds really fascinating, your history. Um, basically, kind of give us some highlights of how did you get to where you're at? What was your previous um, experience? I know you've done quite a bit of time in Alaska, you've done quite a bit of research. So just kind of give us a background uh, to help us understand uh, your history a little bit better. Sure. So um, I was uh, actually born in, of all places, Connecticut, and uh, grew up hunting and fishing and trapping there, and uh, moved to Alaska when I was 19 years old and went to college at the University of Alaska Fairbanks and ended up uh getting a job with the Alaska Department of Fish and Game uh, after I finished my master's degree, which was actually working on grizzly bears just south of Fairbanks, looking at uh, their habitat selection uh, during the spring. And uh, and I spent 14 years full-time working for the Alaska Department of Fish and Game on a variety of species, uh, brown bears um, and wolves and moose and caribou. Um, and, uh, then in 2005, uh, we decided, uh, that living in a little remote, uh, fly in only village was probably not the best way to, uh, raise our daughter. So we started uh, looking at places on the road system and, and Idaho came up. So, uh, so we moved here and, uh, it sort of a natural fit. My wife was actually born here in uh, the gem state. So, and, uh, since I got to Idaho, um, Started as a mule deer um, biologist in the southeast region and then uh, was the deer and elk coordinator uh, here statewide for a while in Boise and then uh, worked as an administration uh, in the Magic Valley down in Jerome for a few years and, and came back to the headquarters and, uh, and I've been the uh, chief since um, last February, so a little over a year. In, being the chief of wildlife and uh, so professionally I've been doing this work for over 30 years and and uh, worked a lot on predation and predators in Alaska and, and uh, so I uh, 
yeah, it's, it's, it's been a really, really good career and I've still got a long way to go to retirement, but, um, yeah. And I've, uh, 2013, I started, uh, acting as an assistant guide up in Alaska for a few different outfitters, mostly uh, guiding uh, brown bear and, and moose hunts. So, uh, and, uh, I, I've hung up those spurs, but, uh, that was, uh, that was pretty fun too at times. <laughs> yeah. I imagine there's some fun stories from that. You mentioned specifically looking at predators during your time in Alaska. Does that translate at all to management strategies to what you're seeing in Idaho with wolves or are those two ecosystems, if you will, so different, um, in terms of their structure in terms of population, game animals, uh, farming there in Idaho, that type of thing. How much relatability basically is there between this experience you've had in Alaska with wolves and comparing that to the situation in Idaho with wolves? Well, I think it's entirely relatable. Um, there is a different, you know, sort of, uh, it's a different order of magnitude, you know, to, to compare wolf um, home ranges, for instance. The average home range in Idaho is about 250 square miles. The average home range of wolves in Alaska is about 500 square miles. And that is all directly related to the amount of uh, prey that's around. Um, I think that, uh, you know, wolf pack average size is a little bit bigger uh, in, in Alaska than it is in Idaho. And, and that's really relates there back about, you know, what is the prey species? And if you compare Idaho to, uh, go to the Great Lakes States, um, their pack sizes are smaller and their home ranges are smaller because the density of prey is much higher. Of course, uh, mm. you know, they hear, you know, wolf primary prey species is elk, um, but they will eat, you know, any, anything. And, uh, you know, in the Great Lakes, it would be white-tailed deer. And, and of course, Alaska, it's primarily moose, but, you know, caribou, doll sheep, a lot of things. So understanding, you know, um, sort of the basics about wolf population dynamics, I think it's a relatable thing between any of the places that wolves exist. And uh, I think that helped me sort of uh understand and, and help people at idaho fish and game because i moved here in 2005 we had taken over um sort of uh, some of the responsibilities for wolf management in 2002 and then sort of in 2006 fully took over the the day-to-day operations of uh you know dealing with mostly conflict wolves but also uh, enumerating wolves and keeping an eye, uh, you know, m- monitoring the population. So mm-hmm. I was able to, uh, to give them information that, you know, nobody else in Idaho, uh, had, uh, had intimate knowledge of quite yet. Have you seen a difference in wolf behavior since the general public's been allowed to hunt them? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You can, <clears throat> I think that, uh, uh, you know, we've got staff that have been trapping wolves to put radio collars on them for um, both, uh, you know, up until 2016, we were doing that um, to help count them. Uh-huh. Uh, and now uh, we're doing it primarily for research purposes. And, you know, those staff definitely recognize that wolves 
aren't as quick to respond to a human made howl as they were mm. 10 years ago. Um, they're definitely, um, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's made, it's made a difference. And, um, you know, there's still naive wolves out there in a lot of places, especially in backcountry Idaho. Um, but, uh, uh, once, a once a wolf is, uh, you know, learns what a human sounds like, they become, you know, most of them become pretty smart about it. You, you've thrown out some dates there. Can you kind of give us a high level overview just of wolves in Idaho? Again, just knowing that our audience is split amongst people who are probably very intimately familiar with this and some who have no idea of context. So, um, just to kind of go back to, uh, you know, about 1900, uh, wolves were pretty much exterminated from Idaho, um, mostly by the use of poisons. Um, by the 1970s, um, there were remnant packs identified uh, in northern Idaho, and we have some, but most of those were uh, north of I-90, and then a few remnant packs still in northwest Montana. Um, in 1995, um, through a uh, the federal process, uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service transplanted 15 wolves from Alberta. Um, and then uh, in 1996, they transmitted 20 more from northern British Columbia in, in, uh, into central Idaho. And uh, so basically, um, they released them in, the, on, in or on the edge of the Frank Church wilderness. Um, so um, you know, having a completely naive prey population um, and lots of prey. I mean, Idaho is very blessed by most of the state having quite a bit of, uh, and prey by, I mean, moose, elk, and, and deer. Uh, wolves did very well. Um, uh, the original, uh, uh, the original agreement was that, you know, that wolves would, uh, you know, we were going to maintain 15 packs and 150 wolves or 15 breeding pairs, sorry, which was a federal construct that they built up, which was a male and a female that had two pups that survived till December 31st. So that, uh, that's what a breeding pair is. But anyways, um, and then, uh, 2006, uh, like I said, fishing game, uh, took over day-to-day -day management along with the uh, Nez Perce tribe uh, staff were involved in uh, in monitoring wolves prior to that. And between 2006 and uh, 2009, uh, we were basically managing uh, conflict and monitoring wolf numbers. And then in 2009, they were delisted. And both Idaho and Montana both had public hunting seasons. So I think we harvested 188 wolves in, in 2009. And lawsuits uh, stopped the hunting in 2010. And then um, U.S. Congress uh, circumvented the courts by delisting wolves uh, in, an, uh, in a rider bill adopted in 2009. So finally removing uh, wolves from the endangered species list and um for five years after that uh in 2011 to 2016 
we were under a uh, host delisting uh, monitoring program, uh, basically being looked over by the Fish and Wildlife Service to make sure we maintained uh, at least 150 wolves and 15 breeding pairs. So in 2011 is when we added trapping. So 2009, we just had a hunting season. And in 2011, we had a trapping season. And um, it's been, uh, yeah, we, the commission has basically dealt with wolves um, from season, you know, expanding seasons, opportunities, methods, um, basically every, every single year since 2009 without, you know, with the exception of 2010, of course, when it was all closed, but, um, and this last, uh, this last, uh, action by the commission here in uh, February on February 20th, um, you know, further, you know, identified that wolves, you know, have expanded their range. They're doing quite well in all of Idaho, or at least that parts of Idaho that they exist. And there's not too many wolves south of, uh, south of the interstate 84, but north of there, um, wolves are doing quite well. And, and they, uh, increase the opportunity to uh, reflect how well wolves are doing. And they're, they're estimating 1500 ish wolves in the state. Is that what I read? Yeah. So um, it's a good question, Steve. So, you know, we had uh, prior to um, actually 2019, um, the only way that we were able to enumerate wolves was using um radio collared individuals, um, and then going out and flying them. Uh, and actually you fly the radio collar and count the number of wolves. Mm. And then we would extrapolate that to the known packs. So we had radio collared packs and then we had a bunch of areas that we knew had packs in them, but didn't have radio collars in them. So we couldn't necessarily count them mm-hmm. and then sort of add that together. Um, and that would be our minimum estimate. Okay. So in, in 2019, and that was somewhere, you know, for the, for the, up until 2016, uh, that number was somewhere in the 700 range, you know, probably from 2012 to 2016, it was somewhere in that 700 to 800 range. I think the highest number was like 781. And and this is still minimum, so it could be yeah. hundred or yeah. two hundred or higher. Yeah. Yeah. So we yeah. we 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 it was basically we were fulfilling our responsibilities and obligations to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that we had more than 150 wolves and 15 breeding pairs. Yeah. So, okay. um, and then in 2019, the director, um, uh, Ed Shriver, um gave me and my staff the uh, task of uh, coming up with a boundable estimate. So in science, uh, you know, we would, we really like having estimates that have a, you know, here's the point, the middle point, but it could be from here to here. And that's Mm -hmm. sort of, uh, that's, that's sort of the best thing that we can do as far as, you know, estimating a population. And because we're not possible. It's not possible to count every critter in Idaho. So every population estimate, every, every, every time we put out a number, it's an estimate. 
um, mm-hmm. of course. And uh, so uh, my research staff uh, went to work developing um, a uh, protocol. This was a protocol using uh, trail cams, actually. And uh, we had used it successfully for elk populations in several parts of the state. It was developed uh, originally by a university, a Montana grad student uh, working on the Beaverhead uh, elk zone. And uh, it it seemed to work pretty well. We could actually use those same pictures to estimate the the ratios, like the bull-cow ratio and the calf-cow ratio. So we we knew it had promise. And uh, so we implemented a study and put out uh, about 800 cameras statewide uh, in a grid. And uh, got back. Uh, so the idea is you get photos back, and and uh, you both you have a photo that's taken on in a sequence. Like every every two minutes, a photo is taken, and then of course the trigger on the camera. Every time the trigger goes off, the pick a photo, a series of three photos is taken. So um, I won't go into the math, but uh, I will tell you that we got eleven point six million photos that we had to go through. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, only by the only by technology's sake and the fact that uh, the good people at Microsoft help us helped us develop a program to go through photos so we could eliminate the nine million photos that had no pictures in it. Um, and then from there, um, we uh, we were able to develop an estimate. And yeah, it came in at fifteen hundred and forty one wolves. Um, bounded by 1,100 on the low side and a little over 1,900 on the high side. And the one thing that people have to take in mind is the fact that that was the first time we'd ever done a summer estimate. So these cameras were out in July and August and Mm -hmm. picked up through September. All of our other estimates were always December 31st. As of December 31st, this is our best minimum count. Um, So if you take the natural mortality that we know that we see in wolves um, and you estimate that and you take the hunter harvest and trapper harvest that we have, you can, for a comparable December 31st number, it would be just about a thousand wolves what Idaho has. And if you sort of, and to sort of see if that makes sense, you look at, well, how many wolves did we harvest this year? what would be the natural mortality for an entire year? And it sort of makes sense that you would have about 1,500 wolves to have a thousand wolves and then produce, uh, you know, a harvest of somewhere in that 350 to 450 wolf number um, annually. So, so the, the estimate, uh, you know, we looked at it from several angles and, and it does make sense. And, and, uh, and we're going to, we're going to actually continue to do that for the next couple of years and uh, try to do a better job of um, figuring out what's the what's the number of cameras that we need to actually get a, a good solid estimate and relate that back to to, to you know to wolf uh, wolf population abundance throughout the mm-hmm. state. It's, it, it, this is the first time that any state in the in North America has ever done an entire state wolf estimate. Hmm. Interesting. They're done on very small, small scales, you know, yeah. you know, Idaho is about 85,000 or 
yeah, it's 80,000 square miles. And, you know, Alaska would do a big, a big wolf estimate would be 9,000 square miles. So, uh, sort of a different, different level, but, uh, yeah. anyways, really, really, really cool work. And, and, uh, so, uh, I'm curious what trends have you seen in elk and deer and moose populations, um, over the last, uh, I guess we're 25 years into wolves being here in the state. Um, it, you know, did they, uh, I, I guess I've, you always just hear rumors from other hunters that the up North got decimated, um, certain areas that, you know, I never personally saw that I saw elk behavior change, but I was still finding as many elk as I was used to. Um, so I, I don't think I ever experienced that, but definitely talked to a lot of hunters that did. So is that behavior changing? Did they really significantly impact populations? And obviously it's regional. Yeah. And I think, um, I think your impression is good. Is, is, is an accurate one for, for parts of the state. There's no doubt that, uh, you know, we've got a couple areas that were already suffering, um, lower productivity, low recruitment, and their population was already going down even before wolves were reintroduced to Idaho. And I would, uh, say that, uh, wolves, uh, sort of steepened that decline, um, uh, you know, places like the low, low and the Selway, uh, are areas that, uh, you know, back, you know, 70, 80 years ago, uh, they were, they, they were, they were very good places to hunt elk. In fact, um, in a, got a 1938 map of elk distribution in Idaho and it's got a big circle around the Clearwater region and then, uh, a little, a little sliver along, along, um, in the Island Park area of Idaho, uh, you know, basically bordering Yellowstone. Mm -hmm. And since then, you know, elk have expanded, um, you know, and, uh, but yeah, the, and, and probably the big reason that there were great elk numbers in that part of the Clearwater mm -hmm. region was, uh, because of the big burn, you know, the habitat had changed elk uh, benefited greatly from, uh, what foresters refer to as early cereal stage forest, which is basically, you know, removing all the trees and just having brush fields and, uh, you know, it go really good. And you, you know, uh, you walk into a, a big, uh, a big uh, stand of anything, pea pine or, or dug fir. And, uh, there's really not much on the ground that an animal could eat. Mm -hmm. Um, once those forests become that way. And so it's, uh, that's been one of the limiting factors. Of course, there's other sources of predation also, but, um, if you look at elk numbers statewide, probably are, um, based on our best science, uh, we maxed out, uh, back in the 1990, the late 1990s, somewhere our best guest was somewhere around a, 125,000 elk. And I would say at this point, um, today, uh, that we're probably back in those numbers, uh, mm. real close to that, but, but there's definitely the, the distribution has changed. I mean, uh, you talk to people that grew up in the Southeast region that, you know, 50 years ago, there was no, there were no elk there. Um, if you want to go elk hunting, you went to the clear water, but there were tons of deer and <clears throat> and you know it uh so we've expanded elk populations into places that they never were i mean the south hills of uh, south of twin falls and all that country uh never had elk and now uh and and uh, you know idaho fishing game did most of that um 
transplanting. Back in the day, I mean, in the 40s, we were transplanting elk into the South Fork of the Boise. Um, and, uh, and that's why we had those old traditional feed areas up there to sort of help them through the winter uh, was the kind of the idea. Mm. And, uh, and, you know, obviously the, that whole Smoky Bennett, uh, Boise River uh, country has plenty of elk now in it. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, mm-hmm. so yeah, and, and I think that uh, there's no doubt that elk, our wolves have changed elk behavior and, uh, and, and I think uh, made them a lot more quiet. In, in yeah, places, yeah. But, but yeah. there's no but, doubt that, uh, you know, if there's a, you know, a third predator on the scene, because we are the mountain lions and black bears, uh, you add a third predator to any system, and uh, especially if it's uh, already not doing well, it's uh, that's going to be further exacerbated. Yeah, I, I was in the early 2000s, was, was hunting the edge of the Frank Church, Um and yeah, just, you know, it over the course of from 2000, 2003, four, it went from maybe hearing one wolf howl to uh, an entire season to like, I think four or five the last year I started hunting there. It was, it was a daily occurrence to fresh wolf tracks, fresh sign, you know, hearing howls, hearing them at night. Uh, and, and the elk just, yeah, I mean, I, I think they were still there. Um, we just had to change how we hunted them. Yeah, and, and wolves have an incredible ability to reproduce. I mean, we're mm. talking about the maximum, uh, you know, ability of increasing by 40% in, in a single year. I mean, that would be sort of the, that's the theoretical maximum. But when you, uh, when you have a, a, basically a very large uh, amount of prey on the, on the landscape, wolves are going to grow to, yeah. To uh, beat that challenge, and uh, and and no doubt that uh, <clears throat> I mean I don't think anybody expected wolf populations to take off and expand uh, like they did um, here in Idaho. Mm. But now they're here, and we're managing them as a big game species, and uh, and trying to uh, you know find that balance. Hopefully, these opportunities we can do that what is there a specific target for that in terms of management going forward and keeping that wolf population at certain levels is this is there a number in mind or is this you know just continuing to monitor and adapt essentially management strategies in terms of hunting trapping etc you know good question no there is not actually a target population um objective for wolves um you know, we're, we're operating under the 2002 uh, wolf plan that was uh, approved by the Idaho legislature and uh, which says we need to maintain um, 150 wolves and 15, 15 breeding pairs. So um, I think that, uh, you know, this all the work that we've done on wolves in the places that we've done it um, clearly shows that we, um, we wolves are here to stay and that, uh, and that we, uh, we can add opportunity. And obviously the commission, you know, has done that. Um, I think that in the next couple of years, we'll be developing a new wolf management plan and, and probably, uh, you know, addressing the issue of whether there's a number out there, um, 
one of the course challenges of that is you know you have to have a technique that's sensitive enough to to detect a change in the number and you know right now i mean basically we're talking about 1550 or 1541 um you know but the but the bounds is 1100 to 1900 or, and so it, so being able to de- detect a change uh is um that's kind of a big spread mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and and like i said um my research uh, staff and uh, management staff throughout the state are going to be working on refining techniques to sort of shrink that bounds so if indeed we, you know, at some time in the future, we'll actually be able to detect a change in wolves, um, and uh, and get there. Can you explain what what the opportunities are, both with recent expansion, but just from a high level? There's hunting, there's trapping. What does that look like for residents, non-residents, tag allocation? Because one of the things that we reached out to our audience with, hey, what questions do you guys have on this um, topic is what are the opportunities? Um, And so just from a high level, what does the hunting, trapping seasons and limits look like in Idaho for wolves? The general trapping season on public land um, is basically August 1st to June 30th um, statewide. There is expanded opportunities on private land and in other in some units on public and private land that go from June, July 1st to June 30th. So year basically year round. Um, so it uh, and and the new hunting and trapping changes can be found on our fishing game website. Um, as far as trapping, primarily is. Um, November 15th to March 31st and uh, foothold traps in some parts of the state um, from October 10th to um, to March 31st you could well I mean basically we have we have areas that are foothold trap only uh, from October 10th to November 14th and then you can use foothills or snares depending on where you're at so as far as the bag limit goes, um, the commission increased the bag limit to 15. So those are for calendar year. So somebody can buy, um, I think the, I think the, 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 for non-residents, uh, it's $30 for a wolf tag and you can buy up to 15. Our residents are the same, except the price is $10. And, um, and then starting July 1st, or January 1st, sorry, you can buy another 15. So if somebody was really going to get after wolf hunting, uh, you could uh, you could basically um, have 30 tags in your pocket from the start of archery elk season to, uh, to the end of March. And uh, if you are a trapper um, and have taken the wolf trapper education course here in Idaho, then you can get an additional 15 tags. Um, and, uh, so that's one criteria that we have is, uh, if you are going to trap wolves, you have to have had wolf trapper education. It's a, it's an eight hour class, uh, that we talk about sort of the primarily the ethics and responsibility, the legal methods and, uh, and sort of the the range of options of uh, 
of uh, traps and and such that you can use and what's legal to use in Idaho. What is the general breakdown? You don't have to necessarily give a specific number if you don't have it between trapping and hunting and total wolf harvest, if you will. How does that play out in terms of percentages? Is trapping much much higher number there? So, um, yeah, trapping um, for the most part was running about, um, you know, a, a, about equal amounts. Um, so like in the fall of, you know, the 2018 spring 19 season, uh, we harvested a hundred and hundred and four wolves with trapping and a hundred and eighty eight wolves with, I mean, uh, with hunting. So a little bit more with hunting. Um, in the fall of 2019, uh, we, the commission had, uh, expanded, uh, the trapping seasons to start October 10th in a few units and, uh, trapping harvest was, uh, 139, um, from basically August, um, or actually it'd be October 10th to, to January 15th. They trapped 139 wolves and, uh, Hunting um, harvested uh, hunters harvested 117 uh, from August because the the hunting season starts earlier than the trapping season August to January 15th. So um, yeah, it's uh, trapping is an is has been a big component in uh, wolf harvest and it definitely has expanded as the commission has expanded opportunities for folks to trap uh, and the tools that they can use. So. Um, it, uh, yeah, it's, it's been, um, it's been an, exp- you know, the, the commission was very, um, very conservative, uh, in wolf opportunity and wanted to see how wolf trapping would have an effect. And I think they've done a great job of, uh, as we learn more about wolves and what the harvest capabilities of hunters are and trappers uh, that they've expanded uh, those opportunities uh, you know under the guise that there are plenty of wolves out there and that um, and that we can uh, we can expand opportunities to uh, to the public to uh, to go out there and harvest them it's um impressive to hear the the tag numbers and the opportunity that's out there and you it's easy to hear that and think oh 15 tags oh my goodness wolves are going to be decimated but kind of give us the the reality of, if you will of hunting wolves um it's not easy um just speak to that a little bit in terms of um success and the impact that though these opportunities are great the as you mentioned, the capabilities of hunters, if you will, in a way is limited with these predators. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I guess the first statistic that sort of speaks to the fact that wolf hunting is, uh, is not, uh, is not fishing in a bucket, uh, is that we sell 40,000 wolf tags every year and we have never even met the 1% of harvest. Um, you know, I think the, the largest uh, 
harvest by uh, hunters and trappers has been somewhere in the you know the 300 the low 300 range uh, over time so so and, and wolf wolf hunting is tough i mean um you're talking about an animal that covers one pack of uh you know five to seven animals is going to cover about 250 square miles and if you're doing that on your back uh you know on your with with your boots it's that's a lot of country um to cover um and they you know people like to think of wolf pack territories as a uh, you know as they just patrol this perimeter well they don't um they make their way around it uh you know over about a two or three week period so you could plunk yourself down in some wolf rich uh area and not see any wolves for a couple weeks um or hear them and yet um you know i i, I think that uh some people are more effective at hunting wolves and and uh, than others and and they definitely put the time in um i remember uh you know, talking to several hunters who have, you know, spent weeks uh, on end uh, trying to hunt wolves, and uh, you know, they their success is very limited. It, uh, you know, I I like many of my fellow Idaho hunters carry a wolf tag around. I I've I've heard them uh, put my glass up on hillsides, knowing that there's a wolf looking at me and never been able to find one and see it yet. Um, you know, they're incredibly hard to see. And, and when people do see them, uh, it's often at longer ranges and, uh, you know, no knock against, uh, the average sportsman, but hitting a pie plate, uh, you know, bouncing around at 400 yards is not something that people practice for. And, uh, and which makes it very difficult. Um, mm. so it's, uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's not as easy as, as one would hope. Uh, and yet, you know, I've had a guy that came in the office, uh, 10 days, he came in twice, 10 days apart. And, uh, he had, uh, harvested a wolf, uh, two wolves in 10 days. He just went out, found a ridge, started what in the wintertime, started walking up the ridge, glassing and, uh, yeah, on two different occasions, on two different ridges, two different separate places, uh, found wolves and, and was able to harvest one each time. So um, there's a little bit of luck involved and, and, and a lot of skill. And I think that, you know, for hunting wolves, uh, you know, probably one of the best ways is, of course, you know, doing a lot of glassing, uh, going to places where there are, where there's food uh, for wolves, you know, whether they're, you know, you're going to be, uh, in an area where there's wintering elk or deer population, moose, uh, and then finding their sign and, uh, and then using, uh, other, other methods like using birds. Um, most people would say that that was, uh, sort of a, you know, an odd technique, but it, it works. Um, you know, if you watch where ravens are flying or magpies, um, you know, if you see a mob of, uh, birds that uh, commonly uh, pick at the flesh off of a dead animal like magpies or camp robbers or ravens or crows and you see a, a, a bunch of them in an area there's probably a kill there um, and uh, and and the wolves will eventually come back um, I, they might even be in the brush 10 feet away hard to say so um, I think howling uh, 
you know, can be an effective technique to, to, uh, to locate wolves, but I don't think, uh, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a guarantee because I think, uh, wolves get smart about that too. And, uh, but you know, there's a bunch of commercial calls on the market. Um, if you listen to, you know, YouTube videos on wolf calling, you know, you can, most people can make that same sound, but not necessarily project it the same volume, uh, without a call. So, uh, and, uh, and then of course, using calls, uh, it is legal to use electronic calls for wolves. And I think that's one of the things that has sort of schooled them up pretty well, because, um, as many people would know that, you know, <clears throat> even coyotes, uh, that have heard, uh, one too many Fox bros, they get sort of smart after a while. So, but uh, they are legal and, uh, and they are effective. How much does do, does wolf territory overlap? So you get two, three packs that, you know, do they, do they have a pretty defined boundary from your understanding or can they, you know, go 50 miles into each is kind of, or not that 50 miles, but you know, overlap miles into each other's country. They don't usually overlap miles into each, each other's country. And, you know, of course, wolf pack territories change with season. You know, mm. if, uh, if elk are dispersed over the landscape, then wolves are also going to be dispersed over the landscape. And when elk, uh, you know, tend to, uh, get into smaller areas, we will, uh, um, uh, you know, wolves, wolves change their, their, ter- their territory. So, um, there is some crossover, um, you know, the pack territories are not a Creek, uh, or a Ridge. And, uh, you know, if there's food on the other side of the Ridge and it's somebody else's ground, uh, wolves will, wolves will walk over there, but, um, it's, uh, pretty much tend to stick to their own areas with a little bit of overlap. Okay. So that definitely during, during winter and, you know, February, March, elk are concentrated in certain wintering grounds or their area is going to shrink a lot and there'll be more concentration wolves in a certain area. Absolutely. And you're going to, uh, you know, you're going to have, uh, and, and, and you could, you know, just by happenstance, um, you know, you could hike up the ridge that is the border between two packs and you could see, you know, two groups of wolves. Mm-hmm. You know, packs also break up uh, into smaller groups. I've seen it where, uh, in uh, low snow years, that uh, where it's more difficult for them to take prey down as a group, they'll actually break up into small pairs. I've seen <laughs> groups. I've seen packs of ten wolves break up into into pairs because they had to result to, uh, you know, I've seen wolves actually mousing just like a coyote around a, a an edge of a of a lake. Uh, I've seen. Uh, I've seen them hunting ptarmigan uh, just in a pair. And uh, it's sort of relative to, you know, how much, how much danger there is in, in, in taking their prey item and, uh, and basically the, the, what, what they get at the end. That's why wolf pack, average wolf pack sizes in the, you know, in the Great Lakes are, you know, four or five wolves uh, because they're killing a white-tailed deer. And a white-tailed deer isn't going to feed 10 individuals or seven individuals like they would find in pack sizes in Alaska or Idaho, whereas an elk is going to feed seven individuals. Um, 
So, so yeah, it's, it's it, a lot of it's related to the, the size of prey, um, uh, to pack size. One of the most common questions that came up, um, on wolf hunting in our audience was what to look for in a wolf hunting area. You know, can you identify quote unquote wolf country, be it via a map or some sort of scouting or imagery tool? Are there certain terrain topography cover features to look for that type of thing? Um, can you speak to that? As you mentioned, especially this time of year, it's going to depend on food for the wolves. So it's probably identifying those wintering type grounds, but can you speak to that question at all, whether it's for this time of year, or how that might even change going into other parts of the year um, in terms of looking at um, areas, topography, cover, et cetera? You know, I would, uh, you know, wolves love to travel the path of least resistance. So in the wintertime, if there is a uh, groomed trail uh, in a wolf trap pack territory, they're going to travel it. And I would say strap on a pair of snowshoes or a pair of cross country skis, uh, or take a, uh, you know, if allowed to, uh, take a snowmobile and go look for tracks. Um, literally they, they, they are going to be on groomed trails because they don't want to work any harder than they have to. I think finding, um, uh, you know, using birds to find their kills, I think is incredibly effective and, and, uh, you know, they, they like to travel on ridges. Uh, windblown ridges in the winter time for sure. Um, and, uh, and they will go and rest, you know, if they make a kill, um, most likely they're going to probably go uphill and, uh, get to a vantage point where they can chill out and digest, uh, their meal and, uh, and look for them on there. It's uh, incredibly, um, interesting how, you know, flying around, uh, at least in Alaska, uh, uh, that you would just come around the corner and see a group of wolves sitting on the knob of a open ridge, uh, just kind of looking at the world and, uh, look, hope you look around a little closer and there's a, you know, a, a kill down below that they've fed on and are just, uh, in between feeding sessions. You know, the other thing is, is that, you know, if you find a kill, um, try not to spend a lot of time there, in it, in its midst, you know, uh, putting your scent down and disturbing it, um, because, uh, that will, uh, they will detect your presence and, uh, and they won't be so uh, easily, easy to come back on that, to that kill. So if you do find a kill, you can stay back and, and, uh, and watch it from a ways hmm. putting up, okay, you know, in places, uh, on a kill, you know, could also, give you an idea of how often they are coming back. And the funny thing about, you know, wolves or interesting thing about wolves is that they'll, they'll come back to a bone pile, uh, eventually, you know, if there's nothing left at it, they will still kind of come back and see, Oh, well this time, you know, we got lucky and, and, you know, kill the, killed an elk. And maybe if they come back this time, they'll be, you know, they, so they do return, um, even, even to things that have happened, you know, years before in places interesting yeah very interesting awesome this is uh this has been so helpful i appreciate not only the the hunting advice if you will that which is all good but just the background the context and uh as we kind of mentioned up front steve this can be a 
very polarizing topic. Um, so just, uh, I think it's good to get some information out there that isn't so, uh, emotionally driven, maybe if you will. Uh, but Toby, thank you so much for taking the time to share, uh, your thoughts and experience with us. Absolutely. And you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, I think it's uh, great that wolves are being managed as a big game species by the state. And uh, I think uh, that's where wildlife management should be. And, uh, and I think we're, we're, we're leading the West in, in, in our efforts to uh, get the public opportunities and to uh, um, be able to harvest wolves. And, and uh, I think that uh, appreciate the time uh, you guys took to, uh, to have this conversation i i really enjoyed it well thanks for tuning in guys if you haven't yet please hit that subscribe button so that you receive future episodes we'll be back next week talking about our death hike the wolf hunt that is part of that and more timely updates so thank you as always for tuning in again you can contact us directly by email to podcast at exomountaingear.com <laughs>